Welcome to the Breaking the Stars podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. So we have a new president in the United States, and 4,000 people are transitioning out of their positions. Employers tend to categorize these individuals into policy or legal categories when they think about hiring. However, what people don't realize is that people in government are organizing the hustlers with deep industry knowledge with skills that are applicable across a variety of other roles in tech. Organizers and political strategists are magical people. And on today's episode, we're going to speak with one of the best, Joteka Edie, Head of Government Affairs at Lenda. She's also a trained organizer and a political strategist that spearheaded the campaign that led to the landmark Supreme Court decision ending the juvenile death penalty in the U.S., Roper versus Simmons, if you want to look it up, organized the NAACP campaign to expand voting rights, worked at several tech companies providing pathways for people to improve their financial health, and she's using her skills as an organizer to bridge D.C. and Silicon Valley to bring them together to make real change. If you are one of those 4,000s or you are someone in government, a lawyer, or anyone involved with grassroots movements interested in breaking into tech or using technology to take your wave to the next level, this episode is for you. If you want to learn more about tech activism or what a tech activist is, make sure you also check out episode 22 by Edeline Bobay. Tell your friends about this and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Arthur and Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so it's 8 p.m. on a Friday. We're recording this episode out of a fintech company called LandUp. Shout out to LandUp. We got through the week. We recorded a bunch of episodes and we're about to kick off the weekend. But before we do that, the only thing separating us from the weekend is this dope interview with an incredible guest. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Thank you, Timor. Yeah, so I mean, I've always loved recording these interviews because I get to do it with my brothers. And the person that we're recording tonight is not just a friend. Uh, she's like my big sister. So she is like my big sister. She's like family. Her name's Joteka Edie. She's the head of government affairs at LendUp. She was also senior advisor at the NAACP. She's a longtime political strategist. And you're going to hear a lot about the amazing policies that she's put in place through her relationships and her efforts. Um, but before talking about that, uh, Joteka, can you, can you take us back to where it all started and you know, where you grew up and where Joteka's from? First of all, I am so excited to be a part of this. I think it's a powerful movement. It's important and uh, it's near and dear to my heart. And Ruben, you are indeed my brother. So I'm really excited. Lots but, of love, lots of love. Lots of love. But, you know, it all started for me in the great big city of Johnsonville, South Carolina. It's not really <laughs> big. It's uh you know, honestly, when we were in the pre-interview, I was, you know, I was sharing. I was like, oh, Johnsonville, we have about 1,500 people. And I was like, oh, but, you know, I told someone that about 10 years ago, let me go online. I think we probably grew it. It said population as of 2013 was 1,500. So uh, small but mighty, wonderful, amazing town. So A lot of great people came from there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you exactly. know, I think one thing about Johnsonville 
is that at one point it was the world's largest production of lanikin, which is like a substance that's used in lotion. It okay. came out of Johnsonville, South Carolina. Okay. That's okay. a little Was known. Johnson & Johnson started there? No, no right. not okay. quite. Oh, shout out to Lanikin. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm from a small town in Johnsonville, South Carolina, which is, uh, you know, if you could imagine small town, it was like really small town. We had one high school, one middle school, one elementary school. So the people you went to elementary school with, you went to middle school and high school with. <laughs> I think you, that's why we relate so much. I mean, my dad grew up in South Georgia, Blakely, Early County, also very small as well. So I get it. And you grew up in the church too, like like I did. I did. I grew up in the church. Church was like a really big, important part of just my growth and also a big, important aspect of just inspiration for me and pushing me forward and uh, really also supporting me because honestly, as a child, when I was invited to like the, a national conference in Washington or to go on a trip out of the country to explore because I was in a special program, literally there were, you know, members of my church that sold dinners to help support me to Like to bake sales. Exactly. Yeah, well, I used to do that too. That's awesome. That's why we're brother and sister. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so much in common. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that special program that got you into this, these national conventions? So, you know, it's an interesting story. So I grew up and uh, I was always a kid that was outgoing. So even as a child, I literally had talked too much on every single report card. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the point I posted it on Facebook, uh, you know, a, a while ago. And it was like wildly like kind of. A lot of my friends just sort of shared it and wrote back and was like, you know, I my child has talked too much on their report card. And now I'm thinking about it a little differently because maybe it's just maybe the kid is just, you know, they're just excited and, and there's it's just a part of the personality. So, you know, my parents like I was disciplined because uh -huh. of it a bit, but also my parents kind of encouraged the personality. But interestingly, when I was in kindergarten, there's the standardized test and I can I can actually have a much longer conversation about my thoughts and feelings on some of these tests and, and some of the negative impacts that they have on communities. But I tested not, I didn't make the score that was the mark to get in regular first grade. So I ended up in a readiness class, like first grade readiness. It's like, Is you're that kind not, of like ESL? Not quite ready for first grade. Got and it, got so it. there was a, a, but that year it was a, a large number of us that, scored in the same percentile. And so there was a teacher, Shirley Cribb, like I, my first grade teacher, and she was so amazing and just like, you know, told us that we can do anything. And my parents had already like instilled in me that I can do anything. My mom always said, you know, Jotaka, you can be anything and do anything that you set your mind to. Shout out to mom. Yeah, mom. And, uh, you know, and my dad, always told me, you know, now that I'm older, I fully understand like what he meant. But as a child, I didn't quite understand. But my dad always said, I'm always going to bet on you. You're my horse if you never win a race. That's and so beautiful. as a child, like I was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm the horse. <laughs> but now as an adult, I understand that what my dad was saying is that as long as you try, you can lose a thousand times and I'm always going to have faith and I'm always going to believe in you and I'm always going to bet on you. So, so I had parents that instilled that in me. I had this teacher in first grade who invested in all of us. And as a result, 
you know, after the first grade, we ended up being, you know, excelling. And then I ended up in the gifted and talented program, which shout out to teachers, (laughs) shout out to teachers, um, shout out to public teachers. I went to a public high school. So hardworking teachers, I think they need to get paid a lot more. Um, (laughs) And I think our schools need a lot more resources. Absolutely. um, Absolutely. But uh, I uh, ended up having a lot of opportunities that afforded me the ability to see and experience a lot as a young child. And so that coupled with parents and then a church family and a community that just really encouraged me and really pushed me and physically invested in me has been absolutely transformative in who I am today. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and speaking of, of people betting on you during the pre-chat, you talk a little bit more about the difference between a sponsor and a mentor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, and I, and I, so mentorship and sponsorship are equally important. And I think you need mentors and you need sponsors. And mentorship is much about someone or a group of individuals who are going to give you advice and who's going to help shape and help guide you. Sponsors take that mentorship a step forward. And sometimes your sponsor is not necessarily your mentor. It's just someone who's going to invest in you and they're actually going to put action. So they are going to advocate for you. They're going to pick up the phone. They're going to make sure your resume is on someone's desk. And so it's important to have not only mentorship, but also to have sponsors. And I think that's important in any any industry. I think it's especially important in in the tech industry. And it's, it's important across the board. But mentorship and sponsorship. And I've been blessed to have amazing mentors and amazing sponsors. Yeah. So it sounds like sponsors are people who not only invest their time because no one's investing money. It's investing their time and taking the actions that can help the other person get to where they are today. Right. Absolutely. And sometimes sponsors invest money too, right? And somebody and your leadership and your development. And, you know, before covering a lot of, a lot of these other things, you know, you are a political organizer and a strategist. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is and you know how these people developed you into who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an organizer, not a lawyer. I think a lot of people think that I'm a lawyer. And Why do people uh, think that? You know, they think I'm a lawyer. I used to do a lot of uh, work in the criminal justice reform movement, particularly around the death penalty, juvenile death penalty, and guest lectured at law schools mm-hmm. on the use of UN mechanisms to advance uh, customary international law in, yeah. in U.S. courts. So, but I'm, I'm a practicing organizer. Yeah. So can, I help create the Can you break down, law. like I know we're going to talk a lot about everything you accomplished, but cover some of the things that you've done. Well, so I like to think of my life as and my career as the zigzag line straightforward. So my career has has if you just sort of look at it and be like, oh, she's did all these different things. Uh, but to me, they all lead towards exactly where I'm at today. So, I, you know, I've always been an organizer as a very young kid. I realized that I was opposed to the death penalty. And I said I wanted to abolish the death penalty when I was in seventh grade. Imagine saying that in your town of 1,500 people. But if you read my high school yearbook right now, it says, you know, We'll abolish the death penalty. Yeah, we'll, we'll abolish the death penalty. <laughs> really? Really. Like it, and, and people wrote in my uh, yearbook, good luck abolishing the death penalty. Have a great life. I mean, um, there's a lot of power in writing Did that touch down. you? What, uh, what made you be so passionate about abolishing it? 
Uh, you know, I read, uh, you know, it started as a uh, part of it. It was really, I was a straight A student and mm-hmm. uh, I had to write a paper in seventh grade. Coach Ken Cribb made us debate a controversial topic. And so in my small town, there was someone who lived in my town of 1500 people who was on death row. So the issue of the death penalty was, uh, was a heightened issue in my small town. And so we debated the issue in high school. I was always a, you know, really good, good gift of gab. And I argued that we should have the death penalty and we should execute this person. And for a major grade, we had to write a paper on the opposing viewpoint. So I read this book called the, it's called the Supreme Court Series. And it was Furman versus Georgia, which broke down the U.S. Supreme Court case in 1972 that abolished the death penalty. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. It was like my like everything just turned on like, what? We do this? I want to end this. And I committed myself at a very young age to figure out what I needed to do to have a career that allowed me to abolish the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And so literally I was like full steam ahead and ended up out of college with a job as the national program director at the National Coalition of Policy Death Penalty. So, wow. Um, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you're definitely, you know, credentialized and credible in speaking about this. And it looked like what the teacher said that you were getting reprimanded for played into the fact that you were such a great debater. And you know, there's a lot of things that have been going on today that we talked about in the pre-chat where we have a new president that's in administration. There's 4,000 people that are going through a transition. And a lot of people in tech have this misconception that, you know, the only roles that exist for them are being people that help change policies as tech transforms new industries and creates new laws. But there's a lot of skills that are developed in politics and organizing and grassroots movements. Can you talk a little bit about those skills and other roles that some of these people can consider in the tech space? You know, I have been saying this over and over again that there's 4,000 political appointees that are transitioning out of the administration. And then there are just numerous others that are just in Washington and beyond. And Silicon Valley would be extremely, extremely smart to tap into that talent. So, you know, there's a big misconception on both sides that in the tech industry, that if you are in Washington, that you you're in this box, right? You're in this policy box. And then think there are people in Washington that put themselves in this box that they can only do policy. And Silicon Valley is all about, you know, just disrupting and breaking the box. And so, you know, there's so many roles, whether it's, you know, legal roles, you know, I think a lot of, you know, it's you build technology, you sell and you grow that technology. So you have business development and sales and you protect that technology as well, you know. And so there are legal roles, there are marketing roles, there's sales and, and business development. So just for example, if you, if you imagine if you have a sales vertical focused on healthcare industry, someone who spent four to eight years at the Department of Health and Human Services working with the leading healthcare providers in the nation would be a valuable asset to your sales and or... They probably know a lot of execs at hospitals, huh? Exactly. Okay. And, so, and, and so forth, ag tech. In so many various other roles, in addition to just imagine, you know, all of the folks that are coming out of commerce or coming out of treasury. And then the other aspect is a lot of people that go into government 
they had jobs before in the private sector. So I think that, you know, that there's this misconception that there's just a bunch of policy folks. But I think there's an incredible amount of talent. A lot of these folks spent time on campaigns. And to me, what I know as someone who worked in the campaign, you know, campaigns, that it, campaigns are filled with organizers and hustlers. Mm-hmm. 100%. And Silicon Valley is filled with organizers and hustlers. So, and it is really about folks that have a drive and, and passion, that they're dreamers and people who care deeply about, you know, thinking big and being transformative. And so you find that in organizing in the advocacy world. And I also see that reflected in Silicon Valley. And for me, it's important to really bridge the gap, number one, and then also offer a concrete steps and a playbook for folks that are thinking about coming into this industry. That's a, one of the best breakdowns I've ever heard on the transition from D.C. to Silicon Valley. And before digging deeper on the playbook, talk about some of the other things that you're working on and why that's important for you. So you and I, we talk a lot about diversity. Silicon Valley talks a lot about diversity. They you know, publish these numbers, but the numbers don't move. Before talking about that, what did you do before and what was the importance of that organization that you work for? Well, immediately before I transitioned into Silicon Valley, I was the senior advisor to the president and CEO of the NAACP. Shout out to Ben Jealous. Ben Jealous, uh, who is now a partner at KPOR Capital. Shout out to KPOR. Absolutely. And uh, in that capacity, the NAACP is the nation's largest, oldest uh, civil rights institution, has done magnificent things for our nation. I I mean, there's a long list. I think we can all appreciate what the NAACP has contributed to our nation and to our individual lives. But my capacity at the NAACP as senior advisor, as you can only imagine, I was working on, you know, my days went from dealing with policymakers in Washington to dealing with corporate execs to dealing with our advocacy partners to expand voting rights or to, you know, shape criminal justice policies that were affecting not only people of color, but Americans across the board. Like, how do we actually, you know, do the work to work with corporations to get them to ban the box so that there's not this question on the application asking, do you have a felony conviction? So moving that to the application. So some, you know, direct campaigns like that, leading work on expanding and defending voting rights. And then also building transformative relationships with other partners in the advocacy community. So that was a a lot of my focus, which interestingly, while I was at the NAACP, there really was begin to be the rise of the social networks across the country. Um, And, you know, I, I went to the NAACP right after the Obama campaign. And I think we saw with President Obama's campaign the use of email and and small donations in a way that really revolutionized politics and political giving. And we began to see how technology really powered people's ability to be motivated in the election of 2008. And so the NAACP was beginning to think about how do we leverage technology for the movement. NAACP is this vast, massive field operation, but we were really thinking about how do we actually organize people online because people are moving online. Not that field organizing, that's really the heart of the NAACP. It always has been, always will be, but how do we actually capture these people online in a meaningful way? And so 
that's for me when I begin to see the power of technology and begin to think about technology as it relates to solving problems and being a real vehicle for for change. For the people that don't know, the NAACP stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. But I think what's an important nuance, and before Timor continues with the next question, is the mission is to ensure political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons to eliminate racial hatred and racial discrimination. Ruben has his NAACP membership card. I do, I do. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, take it, L5. But um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Timor. Thanks, Ruben. I was going to ask you, for the listeners, can you give them an idea of the types of events or the types of movements that you helped organize and how you use technology to do that? Yeah, so one big event was, a, it was a big march on Washington called One Nation Working Together. So we organized about 250, 300,000 people on the National huge. Mall. Yeah, 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 it was a huge number of people. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and and, we and used, that's not, that's not 200, 3,000 plus people online. That's an offline demonstration. Offline, yes, 250,000. Okay. And uh, so we used technology um, really to, to inspire online activity and, and organizing in, co- in conjunction with that. And then another big project of the NAACP, which I think really was very forward thinking, was thinking about how we use technology and, and an app tool to track racial profiling. So how do we actually track racial profiling? How do people in real time submit that I had this interaction and where was that interaction? And how do we begin to use data to actually show that there's a real system and pattern of racial discrimination. And so that was really, honestly, the first time I ever came to Silicon Valley was with the NAACP because we had a meeting with Mitch Kapoor and Frida Kapoor Klein, who have been personally ins- in- instrumental in just my transition and growth in this industry. For the people that know, don't know, can you tell them who Mitch and Frida are and what Kapoor represents? Yeah, so Mitch... Kapoor and Frida Kapoor Klein are the founders of the Kapoor Center for uh, the Kapoor Center and Kapoor Enterprises. So there's Kapoor Capital, there's the Kapoor Center for Social Impact, and then there's the Level Playing Field, which focuses on expanding STEM education. And they, along with their partner, Ben Jealous, who I'd worked with for many years, have been really instrumental in expanding diversity and inclusion in technology. But more so than that is really, really expanding social impact tech. And that's really a driver for why I came into tech is social impact tech. Like how can technology be used to solve complex problems? And you can build a business and that's perfectly fine, but how are you solving a problem as you're doing that? And so that was, uh, you know, when I was at the NAACP, I didn't fully understood the concept of social impact tech or really even understood Silicon Valley, like growing, like when I was in Johnsonville, South Carolina, like Silicon Valley was not a word that I ever heard. Like I never heard those two words. Startup was never like a concept. You know, it was like, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be like, you can go run for office, you can be anything you want to be. But you know, being an engineer or going to working for a startup or going into Silicon Valley was never a part of these are all the things that you can do. So just to crystallize, like the way Kport thinks about things is like, even though they are event, they have a venture capital arm that's focused on investing in companies, 
there has to be a social impact. And some of the companies that Ben Dallas has focused on are companies like Jobwell that's focused on recruiting diversity people inside. He's focused on companies like Pigeonly, Pigeonly. that's helping create phone calls and communication between prison systems. Shout out like Fred that. and Shout out Frederick Hudson and <laughs> things like that. So yeah, so keep going. Yeah, awesome companies like Honor. Man, yep, yep. And, shout out to that's a very good point. Honor. Shout out to Fred and shout out to Honor, who's Major. also another organizer yes. and activist. Yeah, so this notion for me of social impact tech and and diversity and, and inclusion became more of interest to me as I began to be exposed to it. And so just by nature during our time at NAACP, just meeting them and and you know really beginning to learn more about the work that they were doing, particularly in social impact, was very fascinating to me. And then there became this conversation about diversity in, in tech. And so as someone who has for my entire life worked to, you know, work for towards diversity and inclusion, that was also extremely important for me. And so like when, when someone asked me, they're like, well, why did you go into tech? Because I was extremely comfortable. I was like, I had a great job very comfortable in DC, but it, for me, it was really three reasons I came into tech. One is I wanted to solve complex problems and I understood and I knew that technology innovation was the future. And I knew that as an activist, as an organizer, as a political strategist, that it was important to really take a real you know, take a real dive at solving those problems using technology and innovation, because if that's where the future is, and if I really care about solving problems and complex problems in our country, then I need to actually go where the future is. And so that was really important. Number two, it was, I care about diversity and inclusion. And I had a choice. I could, you know, I could be outside of the valley and a real advocate. And I think there's a role as a very important role for those that are not in the industry to lift this issues up. But I felt that I could have impact internally, both internally at a company. So really helping inspire the culture at a company and then in the industry as a whole, like just being inside the industry and then being an example for those outside of the industry for people like me. So one, I'm a black woman. So other black women, you know, you can see a black woman in a senior position at a tech company. And then also I'm not traditional. I came out of DC and that you can have a career in social activism or you can be a political strategist and come in and be successful in tech. And then third for me was bridging DC and Silicon Valley. It's, it's a real need on both sides, you know, and I think a lot of folks think, oh, Washington, they're just going to regulate and we just sort of like push through regulation and just do it. I think that both Washington and Silicon Valley benefit from having a robust relationship. And for me, it was an opportunity to really be a real connector there and then an example and also solving problems. That's super dope. And we always tell our listeners that a lot of the time, if you come from an untraditional background, you might be holding yourself back by thinking that, listen, like, I don't have the skill set that's on the job description. But if you take a step back and you think about the experience that you have coming from a different industry and what you can do by combining tech and that experience, it literally makes you like a unicorn. And that goes for people who are working in the government, people who are in the military, people from all walks of life, because you're able to combine those skills 
and you're able to contribute and think more creatively. Just to follow up on what you were saying before, like, do you remember the aha moment when you told yourself, hey, I'm actually going to now pack up my bags or I'm going to start thinking about how to actually make this transition a reality? Did somebody like call you or like, did you yeah, get a Yeah, so my process and transition is, uh, is, is an interesting one. I resist it. And I'm just being totally honest. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's important to be honest because, you know, I think the misconception is that people who might do these kind of talks have it all figured out. Like, no. No, no give us the, the peaks <laughs> and the valleys. <laughs> and so for me, I really, I had a lot of self-doubt. I really, you know, I the way it was even introduced to me. So Ben Jealous, you know, he was at the NAACP as a president CEO. He transitioned out of that role and came to Silicon Valley. And he became a partner at KPOR Capital. And uh, one day I got a call from Ben. And when he first left, he said, you know, you really need to come to Silicon Valley. And I was like, nah, I'm going to stay at the NAACP. They need me here. I'm happy. And he was like, you know, I think it's important for you to, you know, continue your service at the NAACP. But, you know, it's it's always good just to think whenever and if you ever do decide to transition to think about this other industry. So for me, it was like if I ever was going to leave the NAACP, I never thought in a million years that it would be to the private sector and Silicon Valley. So, I mean, for I mean, if you can imagine, I grew up as an activist, an organizer, evolved into a political strategist. And I always thought that the private sector business was bad, right? Like, no, that's like the other side. And I thought the only way that you can solve a problem and to advance social good was through policy. If you're, you know, elected official or if you were an advocate at some advocacy organization or if you're doing direct service someplace. So like you're doing direct service or service provider, you're a teacher. That's where you are able to advance social good. So this thought that I could keep my personal North Star, which is to, you know, affect change in this world and to ensure that when I leave this world, that it is better than when I entered it. That's my personal North Star. I didn't think that I could do it in the private sector. So I just really kind of like blocked it like, no, that's not for me. So a couple of months later, I, I received a call and Ben was saying, shared, he was like, you know, we have a this tech company, and I think that, you know, you would be a great fit for some of their needs. And I, you know, I said, I guess I'll have a conversation. And so my pathway into tech started as a series of conversations with the CEO of a tech company that I joined, uh, not Up, it was actually Pay Near Me, Danny Shader, someone who I really have grown to be friends with and like a lot. And uh, I, you know, went in the conversation just sort of thinking, I'm just having a conversation, but I'm not, this thing is probably not for me. And I had a lot of self-doubts because I was like, uh, tech, Silicon Valley is a bunch of white guys in t-shirts. That's not a place for somebody like me. Like, I'm not, a, like, anybody knows me. I'm not, although I'm. I kind of have on a t-shirt now, but it's like a fancy t-shirt, I think. But I'm not like, I'm not the t-shirt type of person. And so like, I think I only own like one 
pair of sneakers. Uh, so, so, so you only talked to one company, or so was I, it because yeah. you were really passionate about financial literacy for the community, or what? So was it? it was. It was just. And what, honestly, what does Pay Near Me do? By so, the way? Pay Near Me is an electronic cash network which enables un and underbank consumers to pay cash at a Seven Eleven. Like a debit card or something else? No, it's actually just you take cash and you and you hand it to the clerk at the Seven Eleven, and uh, they scan a they scan a barcode. And it's amazing technology that enables uh, whoever you're sending that money to to receive it like an electronic. Payment. Got it. Got so, it. Uh, um, so it's kind of like Western Union. It like, is, but better. Yeah. Got so it. yeah, so that's was this before Bitcoin came out. Uh, <laughs> no, I think yeah, Bitcoin was out. Yeah. But this the company. Yeah. It's largely it's easier under, to under understand. Yeah. yeah. So I had this conversation, and uh, ultimately I received an offer to join the company, and I really was like, I'm not going to do it and largely because of really thinking that i don't think i can be successful i didn't really see very many women Mm -hmm. i didn't see very many black women so i didn't really feel like it was a place that i wanted to go because i felt like one there's no community second i just don't know if i gel in this world can i really be successful Mm -hmm. in this world and those were my self-doubts and and i often say that you know, now looking back at my younger self, I'm slightly disappointed, you know, because here I was this person who had, you know, at the time, I think I had traveled to like 30, 35 countries, I lobbied in the UN, helped end the juvenile death penalty, you know, worked at the highest ranks of the largest civil rights organization. But I was self-doubting yeah. um, because I didn't see myself in this industry. I didn't think there was a place for somebody like me. Yeah. Um, and the imposter syndrome. And I think that's what you're describing. It's super prevalent in tech, especially with people who are breaking in from non-traditional backgrounds. And then all of us experienced it. And until we actually got here and started meeting people, and then someone mentioned to me, I remember like, hey, like something about the master's syndrome. I'm like, what is that? And they're like, well, it's when you are totally qualified, but you're in the back of your head, there's a voice that kind of tells you, hey, they're going to find out you're not legit or something like that. But you're totally qualified. You have the skill set. You've paid your dues. But because it's something new and you don't see a lot of people like you in the industry, you feel like you're not going to get accepted. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah. I think that was the feelings that I had. Yeah. And I'm not a coder. Like, I don't know how to yeah. code. I mean, like, to me, it was just like ones and zeros, ones and zeros. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Lindup has an amazing group of, like, engineers. We, we even got uh, engineers in the room. Who we we got do. In the room? We have Jeremy in the room. Shout who's out an engineer. Hi. Say hi, Jeremy. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> so Jeremy and I actually started on the first day at Lindup, and nice. we also have Crystal in the room. Let's keep a lops for Lindup. You know, I really had like I I don't know how to code. I, it was just like all these thoughts, and and then ultimately, and uh, what was the deciding factor to me was a very inspirational conversation with Frida K. Porkline. Okay, and so I was having a conversation with Frida, and Ben was extremely instrumental like very very instrumental in just pushing me and opening my mind to something different and and when i was having this conversation with frida she said you know jateka you have an incredible opportunity to create and be a part of something big and to really be a part of change and you can actually solve problems and be an example in this industry. And you can actually also begin to create opportunity for yourself and others. And for me, it was just so 
inspiring and it just clicked for me. And for me, it was like, wait, I can actually do good Mm -hmm. and I can also be an example and I can also create opportunity for myself and others. Yeah. And that to me was really a real motivation for me calling Danny Shader and saying, yes, I'm going to take this leap of faith and take a job 3,000 miles away in an industry that I didn't know a lot about and challenge myself to go into business. But for me, and I'm very adamant about, you know, social impact tech. So making sure that I'm continuing to stay focused on this commitment to change. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, you've mentioned it several times in this conversation about the importance of being a black woman and how important it was to find people that look like you. And you talked about sponsors and you talked about mentors, but you also talked to us in the pre-chat about something that's very special, which is a group called the Colored Girls. Can you talk about the Colored Girls and how organizers have this big vision they think in scale and how that applied to the factors and your decision to come out here? You know, uh, the Colored Girls, shout out to the... So if you do not know, if you're listening... If you've never heard of the Colored Girls, you don't know who the Colored Girls are, I encourage you to Google the Colored Girls. They are a remarkable group of black women that have, you know, they command a great amount of respect in Washington and across the country. And the the women in that group is Tina Flanoy, uh, chief of staff to President Bill Clinton, Mignon Moore, who's a, a principal at Dewey Square, but also a close senior advisor to Secretary Hillary Clinton, Donna Brazil, chairman of the DNC, political commentator, and uh, just amazing. Reverend Leah Daughtry, who um, is, all of them are inspirational, but Reverend Leah Daughtry, uh, remarkable, was is, was, is the only person in the United States to ever be CEO of a national convention twice. So she was CEO the DNC convention in 2008 and also in 2012, Huge. I'm sorry, 2008 and 2016. I'm dating myself now. <laughs> um, and Yolanda Caraway, who is a media uh, mogul. She's actually featured in $50 billion boss. So okay. uh, you can read Yolanda Caraway's story. In I'm going to look that up. We'll, we'll include it in the boss. show notes too. Yeah. So, but these women have intentionally and purposefully poured into other young women. And I'll never forget when I came into uh, this industry and I was thinking about it, they said, you know, always remember why you're there, like why you are there. That's so important. And number two, it's equally important that you ensure that you widen and open that door wide that you walk through because somebody opened it for you. And so I take that with me every day. And so that's why it's so important for me when I get an email, a text message, and I literally get an email or text message or a phone call generally every single day with someone saying, hey, I'm very interested in transitioning to tech. Can we have a conversation? And so I think, you know, podcasts like Breaking Into Startups and, and other tools for those that are interested in breaking into to startups is incredibly valuable. And for me, I think that it's actually my duty to do that because I firmly believe that, you know, good people should have good jobs that have transformative impact in this country. And I think that Silicon Valley is the future and it's the wave of the future. And it's not just here in 
California, but you know, that opportunity is also in places like Atlanta and places like New York and Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles and other parts of, of this world. They're mm -hmm. amazing energy out there. And you asked me, Ruben, I want to go back to just the importance of black women. And one of the things that I've been really inspired by in this in industry is just the amount of black women that mm -hmm. are here in this industry. And, and I honestly believe that those stories need to be elevated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Is there any equivalent to... Uh Come to this organization, this group in Silicon Valley that's helping like the colored girls. Is there a yeah, tech there... equivalent that exists right now? There's a real network of Black women in tech that you know, and it, and it's also really it's just it's like human nature, right? Yeah. You know, like it's there's just like this <laughs> I human see nature of What's I up? see you, I see you, you know, purposely and yeah. a real network. And I'm inspired by Black women. Like I work every day with Black women who are in leadership at Linda Crystal Shields. Uh, who's actually in this room, who yeah. has, has people operations. And, and there are other black women in this industry, Nikki Lassie at Salesforce.org, Nancy Dugan, who's an engineer, Ayori, uh, yes, uh, who's doing amazing work at Salesforce. And, and I mean, the list Phaedra, goes, Phaedra, Anna. oh my goodness. Phaedra is, Phaedra is like extra special to me because <laughs> she's a, an organizer like I am that, you know, broke into startups, uh, has a very different background and so there's just so many amazing black women you know Stacey at task rabbit mm -hmm. there's just, the list CEO. goes on mm -hmm. and on and on of black women that are just really doing amazing things and in tech and i think those stories need to be told really because young black girls and girls everywhere and people everywhere need to see these voices and these stories and hear these stories. Yeah. I mean, and be inspired that when someone thinks of tech, it's important that the only image that they think should not just be, you know, a white guy in a t-shirt. Totally. Like, yeah. What were some misconceptions? Uh, you mentioned the white guy in a t-shirt. What were the, some of the differences before and after that you experienced having been in tech for a few years? Like, what are surprises or something that you totally like, change your mind on once you broke in? I think the first thing is that private, it was more like private sector. Like mm -hmm. for the first, the first thing for me was that, yes, absolutely. I didn't really believe that private sector was a vehicle, right? For, and this was like really prior to going into startups mm -hmm. or even beginning the process of going into startups. I just didn't think of, I didn't really put private sector, social impact, solving problems in the same category, right? And so after now being with, you know, tech companies that are, you know, every single day, like up, you're in our office, you could probably feel the, the spirit of social impact. Like every single day, you know, we are coming to work and focusing on ensuring that we can create a path for anyone in this country to build better financial health and building innovative products using technology to really begin to take people out of the most predatory lending products and on a path to fi better financial health. And that to me is absolutely powerful. And so my experience in technology has really solidified and really changed my entire viewpoint on how the private sector can actually play a major role in really being a key factor in advancing social good in our country. And so that was really a big one for and me. for our listeners kind of you just kind of gave a really good like high level overview of lenda but kind of what are some tangible products that you guys provide that people could benefit and 
kind of help? Because you talk about social impact. So what are some of the products and how do they better people's financial well-being? Absolutely. Yeah. So Linda, we offer a number of products. So we have uh, an alternative to payday loans. So a, a lot of people, and, and, and for me, it's near and dear to my heart because being from a very small town in South Carolina, you can only imagine that not only my family members, but even when I first graduated college and was living in D.C., I took out a payday loan, not really understanding what it was. There are a lot of predatory lending products that are meant to keep people in a vicious cycle of debt. And so yeah, Linda, bad credit is something that, that affects the hood heavy. Abs- absolutely. And so what LendUp created was an alternative to that product, which is a product that is safer, it's cheaper. But most importantly, we embed financial education in our products. So it's important that for us that we are improving our customers' financial health. So we have what is called the Lend Up Ladder, which mm-hmm. allows our customers uh, where we can legally allow our customers to access more credit at lower rates over time. And so it's been really phenomenal. And we have saved our customers millions and millions and millions of dollars that they otherwise would have paid mm-hmm. in fees. And mm-hmm. so that's really transformative. We also offer installment loans, and then we have a credit card, which is one of the most, uh, I believe, one of the best credit cards on the market that is really equipped with some of amazing technology mm-hmm. that will enable our customers to have a better understanding of their own financial health. Mm-hmm. And our goal is to help raise credit scores of our our customers and and also to ensure that our customers are better, you know, after they use our products yeah. um and and use our financial education and as well. And basically I guess the idea is that you build up track record like and once you show kind of the same like you build out your credit history by showing that you could be a responsible borrower, right? So is that the idea kind of similar you start with like I guess with a lending product, right? And then you the, the more you could prove that you're a reliable borrower, the better rates you're going to get. And then you're going to be able to improve your his- history without being uh, preyed upon by payday loans and other organizations that don't really care about you uh, kind of educating yourself on the lending products. Instead, they would be like, hey, we'll, I don't know, we'll give you the same product, if not higher interest rates and then take over advantage Over and over again. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, LendUp's mission is to really for us, uh, the customer is at the center of everything we do. Mm-hmm. So you know, the customer ultimately and the customer's financial health and increasing and that financial health is at the center of Linda. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a stark difference than a lot of the products that have traditionally been the only products that those in that those are a lot of our customers mm-hmm. have ever been able to access. So mm-hmm. predatory debt traps, you know, just folks that products that are meant to just sort of, you know, keep them in a downward spiral. And so at Linda, we have a value. It's my favorite value. It's called ladders, not shoots. And so how do we put people on a ladder to greater financial health and not in these shoots that continue to, you know, decrease their credit scores? And we all know that credit scores have a great impact and a ripple effect on life in general. You know, a lower credit score has a an impact on, you know, whether or not you can get a car, what kind of interest rates you have, a and, house. and a house. Uh, and unfortunately, in a lot of places, a job. You know, when I was at the NAACP, we did a lot of work to just really begin to 
to really set policies that companies shouldn't be checking your credit score mm-hmm. to test whether or not or to determine whether or not mm-hmm. you are you know qualify for a job mm-hmm. you know yeah. it, i mean it's just, it's just like i love to use this word like it defies logic like mm-hmm. it absolutely defies logic that yeah. if someone's trying to get a job and you're going to check their credit and that their credit score is a certain level or not at a certain level, you're not going to give them the job. So, like, what logic does that make? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so credit has such a huge impact on life. And so that's why I'm so passionate about the work mm-hmm. that we're doing at LendUp because every single day, you know, when our customers are able to take our credit education class, which are free online, we have had, you know, a million uh, views of these credit education classes across the country when they're able to access that and learn and have the information that empowers them to make better decisions when it comes to their financial health or whenever they're able to get out of a predatory payday loan and onto the lend up ladder and able to climb that lend up ladder and then find themselves with the lend up L card which is a great card that's going to give them tools and the capacity to really have a line of credit and essentially no fees mm-hmm. when you, you know, when you pay on time, that to me is transformative and really trying. And what we're doing is solving this problem at scale because right now, and I did this work for many years at the NAACP and there are many, many advocates that are focused on this. And I think that there's a role for the advocacy community in Washington and in state capitals across the country to weigh in on this in policy. And I also firmly believe that there's a place in the private sector for, you know, companies like LendUp that are mission driven companies Mm -hmm. to also work to create a scalable market driven solution to this problem as well. I could just sort of talk about LendUp all day. I I can see why you you were an organizer before. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about your job at LendUp now? What does your day to day look like? And then coming from, uh, a different field. How did you position yourself to excel at this job? So I head government affairs at LendUp and my day to day is it's really I live in DC. I split my time between DC and San Francisco. So if you're follow me on Facebook or Instagram or any place you see East Coast, West Coast. They um, call that bicoastal. Yeah, I live uh. a bicoastal lifestyle. <laughs> and so my day to day is really making sure that policymakers and advocates are aware of LendUp and uh, aware of the products that we offer and also ensuring that I'm working with policymakers and advocates uh, to really help shape policy that is uh, impacts uh, financial services. And so I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, I've spent a lot of time in places like the White House and with advocacy communities, really sharing information about LendUp and our social impact. And so in addition to to that, I spend a lot of time thinking about LendUp's uh, partnerships and, and how are we working with think tanks and nonprofits to expand our mission as well and, and where there are areas of a convergence of, of interest uh, and where we're aligned working together to advance consumer protections. Because mm-hmm. For us as a company, it's equally important to ensure that there are policies and laws that exist that protect consumers while balancing the need uh, and this clear need to have some opportunity for those who need to access credit. So Mm -hmm. that's what I spent a lot of my time in. 
I really enjoy my work. And it goes back to talks too much on my credit uh, I'm sorry, my credit card, <laughs> but talks too much on my report card uh, because I have to talk a lot for work. So it's a lot <laughs> of conversations, a lot of meetings. And so it kind of comes in handy. I mean, I honestly hope that my teacher is listening, Miss Skinner. She's now married, but I know she's my friend on Facebook and you used to write on my report card. Jataka talks all the time, all the time, all the time. Now <laughs> I'm using And you're getting paid for it. <laughs> <You're paying> for <laughs> it now. <laughs> and that, and it goes back to what Timo was talking about before, which is like you gotta embrace your unique, unique background and that's your superpower. You know, and a lot of times whatever people look at you and say that's weird, that's actually like what you should embrace. So that that's that's really cool. And I love the concept of ladders, not shoots. And in the pre chat, you introduced us to some leaders of your employee resource group called Black Ladders. Can you talk about that? Yes. So one thing that's really awesome about Lindup is that we have a very great network of Black employees, both in our San Francisco office and in our Richmond office. And so we have an employee resource group called Black Ladders. And so it's really awesome. And uh, our leader of that is a young woman who is a young black female engineer named uh, Hallie Lomax. So. Shout out, Hallie. We're going to have to have her in our podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. She has a very <laughs> amazing story in how she came into tech. Like, Hallie is, uh, you know, she, she really came in. She hacked her way into tech. Extremely smart, amazing young woman. Went to Howard University and decided to, you know, leave and yeah. come an engineer yeah. i mean we, we are we, all we, about those stories we love the move, yeah. movement of black women in tech and just what black women, movement women in general like you have hidden figures we had Idalene bobay on the podcast who was oh, part wow. of early employee of black girls code shout out kimberly bryant with black yes. girls code um and, and we definitely want to see more people rising in, in, in that regard yeah um, so earlier on and in the beginning um in the pre-chat you mentioned that you talked about the playbook of how people on the outside what they can do and how they can think about strategies, tactics when they're thinking about transitioning into tech. Can you share with our listeners some of those strategies? For the 4,000 people that are transitioning, what can yeah. they do to get into tech? A couple of concrete recommendations is uh, one, research and really learn more about the industry. I, that's really important. When I came into tech, that was something that I relied heavily on and I you know, I started, I read The Secrets of Silicon Valley, The Hard Things About Hard Things. I started reading, you know, Venture Bead. I started reading TechCrunch. You know, I really also, Quora uh, is a tool and a resource that I still use like every day. Like I go on there, I just ask a question, but I really use that as a tool to just really learn about the industry. And so that's the first thing is to really just Start reading about the industry. How is it moving? You know, then identify people in the industry that are doing things or companies that you're interested in. So, you know, and what technology are you consuming and or using that you really like? And if you really, really like it, maybe you want to go work at that company, you know. And so or maybe there's someone doing something in the industry that you're interested in. And, and once you find that person and or that company just reach out, you know, use LinkedIn, use Facebook, Twitter, follow anyone that you're interested in, follow them on Twitter, use LinkedIn, 
and really check and see where you have connections. Do you have connections with anyone that works in that company? Do you have connections to anyone that's on the board of that company? And then just be bold and just reach out because I, you know, firmly believe that you're going to miss every shot that you don't take. Yeah, that's Wayne Gretzky. That's what Timo Timo's all about, that life. Absolutely. So, like, you know, just go for it. You know, reach out. And then once you find someone, don't be afraid to ask just very real questions. Because for me, when I was coming into tech, having someone like, you know, a Ben Jealous or a Frida K. Port Klein that I can ask, like, what, you know, someone might deem as a silly question, what do they mean when they talk about burn rate? Like, I don't understand. Or what, you know... Is it proper to ask about a company's valuation during an interview? Or what is, you know, what's this equity thing? How does it work? Or what's the stages of a startup? So what do they mean? What's the difference between I'm in a series A or I'm in a series B or a series C? Like what are the, you know, like how to speak the language, Yeah, how to speak the language. And so really, you know, one is just like for me, having someone to ask those questions was incredibly valuable to my transition into tech and sort of understanding the language and knowing the difference and then also preparing for not only the uh, interview process but also the negotiation when you go into tech so I think it's just as important to prepare for interviews and understand but also when you're actually negotiating can you tell us a little bit more about that kind of so our listeners may not know like what equity is so if you could just give a brief overview of like how do you look at equity? And then kind of when you're negotiating, especially if you're going from a different field where you had a lot of authority and power and now you're going to tech. So how do you translate those, not just skills, but how do you, I don't know. Keep the leverage. Yeah, keep the leverage when you're negotiating in tech. Yeah, so. To make sure you're not undervalued. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, knowing your value is incredibly important and also understanding what your value brings to that company and having a clear understanding of the goals and needs of the company. So that's absolutely important. And then also you just have to be realistic. So a lot of startups, you know, they don't have a lot of resources. Therefore, often a startup will offer equity and which is an opportunity to have ownership in the company. So you equity is to really explain it the best way that I can is that you know, you get an opportunity to have a right to purchase shares of the company. And generally, those shares vest, which is a fancy word for, you know, it takes generally four years for you to fully vest or fully earn the rights to purchase all of the options that are before you. And so it's important to understand, you know, equity and what it means. But I think the power in Silicon Valley is that, and that's another value of LendUp is uh, at like an owner, is that we're all the owners of this company. We all have such a stake in the company's success. And I think that's what's powerful about the Valley is that there's a real, there's a real drive because you're not like in some corporation that, you know, only a few people are making like a whole bunch of money and, you know, you're just working every single day. But here it's just like we all are trying to build this company together and we all have a stake in it. And if you you think about that ownership, you think about startups that grow exponentially and we talk about 10x, you know, they might start off with a million dollars in revenue in the beginning and then next year it's 10 million, then a hundred, then a billion. And then that 
less than half a percent that you own is still worth several hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars or whatever. Absolutely. And so that's why a lot of people sometimes, you know, sell their dreams. But you do have to understand like a lot of things about valuation and things like that that we could talk about later. But that was a good overview. Yeah. And I think for anyone coming into tech and particularly from a different industry and particularly from government, that kind of industry, it's important to be realistic that, you know, there's not necessarily sometimes there's not a lot of money. And sometimes you will take significant pay cuts because one, you believe in the company and then you'll take, you know, you'll have a lower salary, but you'll have, you know, a larger opportunity or a larger equity options. And so, and and honestly, I think that's where I think what's special about Silicon Valley, because you have people who really believe in the company and they believe in the mission. If it's a mission aligned or mission driven company that will work uh, for a company. And then as they build that company, as that company grows, you know, you're rewarded through your equity. But, you know, in the beginning, in a lot of tech companies, it's, you know, it's not a lot of resources. So you can imagine some companies, their seed, you know, they may raise several millions of dollars, $10 million, $20 million. But a lot of times the CEO won't even take a salary. He's just paying all the, or she's paying all the employees, you know, whatever that they can pay and then giving them more equity instead of salary. And then as they execute, you know, they're incentivized to make it grow. So no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So at this point in our podcast, there's one other thing I did want to talk about. Are you still involved with the NAACP? I am still involved with the NAACP. I'm a life member of the NAACP. And I also, it's come full circle. And uh, Ruben, you, you were a part of this dynamic summit that the NAACP recently held with young leaders in various industries across the, the country. And tech was an industry. And uh, this summit that was organized uh, by Nicholas Wiggins at the NAACP, shout out Nicholas Wiggins. Shout out Nick. Rosalind Brock, who's the chairman of the NAACP, shout out Rosalind Brock, really was focused on helping the NAACP think about how it engages with uh, new and emerging industries, including tech. And so being a part of now helping the NAACP think about its engagement with Silicon Valley, to me is really full circle as as it relates to just giving back and taking everything that I've learned and and really hoping that it can it can be scaled uh with an institution like the NAACP. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate being invited to it and being involved with such a historical organization and excited to see where we're going to go next. So the, the next step is the team was going to yeah, so tell you what, what's coming up. At this point in our podcast, we do, do, we do the lightning round, and this is where the three of us will ask you several questions. And the questions are geared towards any strategy, tactic, or a resource that you've used to break into a startup. So with that said, Arthur, take it away. Yeah, so this question takes us back to the basics. So imagine if you uh, just moved to a brand new city, you only had $100 and you were starting from scratch. Kind of what would you do to get back on your feet and how would you spend that $100? Oh, well, the first thing I would do is uh, open my phone and uh, call someone that I know. <laughs> well, if you didn't know anyone. Oh, I didn't know anyone. Yeah. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm all about self-preservation. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to buy, I used to call them like, oodle noodles but ramen noodles nice <laughs> i think they're like 50, 50 cent <laughs> so i'm gonna like go make sure i have enough food mm-hmm. 
to last me. So I'm not worried about where I'm going to get my next meal. Yep. I think the next thing I would do is uh, go, you know, I'm going to, I only have a hundred dollars. So I'm hoping I can, you know, couch surf. So I'm going to go online to the couch surfing. Maybe uh, go on LandUp's website. <laughs> that is a good one. <laughs> I probably have a hundred dollars. So yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be responsible because I probably would read, uh, <laughs> you know, I would take a LandUp class and it would actually, uh, yeah. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Can you take it back to a point when you might have felt down? Maybe not while you were in tech, but you know, everybody has ups and downs. We talk about how a lot of times when you hear people's stories, it sounds like it was a classic fairy tale story, but everybody has their down moments. I know you listen to a lot of music, you're a musical person. Can you maybe talk about a song that helped you get through a dark place and maybe sing a little bit of it? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean I've always, gosh, that's a very good question. This is a lightning round. So I've often, you know, I mean, there have been times like when my, the passing of of my grandparents each time was really hard for me. And it was particularly my grandfather that died when I was older. So that was really tough for me to, you know, be, he died in 2010. So you know, my other grandparents died when I was in college and in middle school, but I was at an age where I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was super excited about him really experiencing the Obama era of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And that December, I knew that I was going to be invited. Uh, I received an invitation to the White House holiday party. It was the first time I'd ever been invited to a White House Christmas party. I was like, couldn't believe it. And he died on November the 10th. So wow. I wasn't able to take him. So it was really sad for me. Sorry to hear that. Sorry was there that. something that you listened to that helped you get through that moment? I love music. And uh, one of my favorite songs is Amazing Grace. It's uh, Can you sing it for us? <laughs> seriously, seriously. I mean, you have a beautiful voice. A lot of people don't know that. Just a little bit. Uh, let's see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But now I'm found. That, that was, was amazing. That was, that was, that was amazing. Uh, you almost made me cry. Um, <laughs> that was powerful. That was powerful. Now we're going to have to make every guest sink. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> Do we have anything yeah. else? So one uh, last question. So having been through this journey, and you didn't mention if you had any brothers or sisters, but... um. What is your, uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? Any siblings? I do, I do. I have a brother. His name is JJ. Shout is he out to JJ. Or older? He's older, JJ. he's older. older. So yeah. my my dad had a son before he and my mom married. So my brother never lived with me. So mm-hmm. I was raised as an only child. Mm-hmm. So I have an only child syndrome. Mm-hmm. But uh, my brother is very near and dear to me. And yeah. So the question that I wanted to ask you is, let's say there is someone who is, um, 
maybe your friend's uh, daughter or son who is uh, or who is graduating from college and they're thinking about tech, what advice would you give them knowing what you know now? First advice is that that's the future, that there's an incredible amount of opportunity. There is nothing that you can't do in tech. So whatever you want to do in life, there's an opportunity to do it in tech. And the last thing that I would say to someone graduating from high school is don't be afraid to just go into the unknown and just figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You talk a lot about leaving no stone unturned and um, related to like people finding what they're passionate about. I remember in the beginning, especially for these people that are in politics, that they already think about how to get their policies implemented across the nation and that it's just in their local place. And that's similar to technology. They think in scale. So like maybe, you know, take over California and then it's nationwide and it's global. And it's not always about taking over, but just like, how can I make the most impact? Like our goal is like, I just want to help a billion people get jobs, you know? Yeah. Do that, everything else comes. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, for me, tech and activism and the world um, of social activism particularly are very similar. In Silicon Valley, you have dreamers and you have people who hustle and people who want to be transformative. Whether or not that changes, I want to, you know, I want everybody in the world to be on a platform and sharing photos and information or I want to improve the financial health of everybody in this country and create a pathway for the 56% of Americans who are locked out of traditional banking, whatever that is, that there are people in this industry that are dreamers and they hustle and they want to create transformative change. And then when you look at social activism and political activism, it is very similar. So you have people who are dreamers, you have people who are hustlers and who hustle, and people who want to create transformative change, whether that's, you know, expanding voting rights for millions of Americans, whether that's, you know, reversing, you know, draconian laws like felony disenfranchisement laws that lock out four million people from voting or whether that's expanding education to children in this country who who are trapped in in these tracked systems and who don't have the resources in their public schools that they need to really tap into their full potential or whether it's changing economic policies that that begin to shift the way our society really creates policies for people to have economic success and advantages in this country so still what holds true is that they're dreamers and they're people who hustle to be transformative and so I think for me, when I came into this industry, what I realized is that Silicon Valley is just a lot of organizers. I don't know if they necessarily consider themselves organizers. They are organizers. And they're organizers that are using technology and innovation to really create and transform the world in which we live. And so I'm really excited to be a part of it. I'm excited to be a part of this movement. I'm excited to be an example that you can come from political activism and social activism and take those same skills, those exact same skills, and use it every day to help build a company, to build business that creates change. Wow. Amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, We're excited to see where you're going in the future. 
You talked about Twitter, LinkedIn, emails. Like, what's the best way for people to get, people to get in touch with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Jotaka Edie. That's at J-O-T-A-K-A-E-A-D-D-Y. You can also find me on Instagram at Jotaka Edie. And you can also see me occasionally on Lindup's handle at Lindup Credit on Twitter. You can follow us on Instagram at Lindup. And I really encourage you to check out Lindup.com and find out more about the work that I am blessed to do every single day. Amen. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.